Planet Football Podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks. For freelancers and small business owners, FreshBooks takes the pain out of accounting. Have a question about the service? A real live human will answer every call in about three rings. Get your 30-day free trial by going to freshbooks.com planet and entering I'm pro-American and yeah. proud of that. You know, I, I want to hear American voices calling our national team games. Uh, people had painted their cars and houses red in Trinidad's <laughs> colors, you know, in advance of the game. Imagine doing that in this country, you know. Tell your wife, whatever your, you know, your favorite college or pro team is, that, you know, for the Super Bowl, we're going to paint our, our house, you know, Denver orange or whatever their colors are, right? I mean... You wouldn't be married much longer, probably, right? Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor, Avi Creditor, and we have a special episode for you uh, this week. There's a lot going on in the world of soccer, of course. The Copa America draw is coming up this weekend. Uh, Arsenal making things interesting in the EPL title race. Uh, but we had a special opportunity for Grant Wall to interview J.P. Della Camera, who's been calling the U.S. Women's National Team's Olympic qualifying games uh, for NBC. And if you've been watching American soccer at all for the last, what, 30-plus years or so, you've heard J.P. Della Camera's voice. He's called some of the most iconic moments in U.S. soccer. He has called some of the biggest games in U.S. soccer. Uh, and to this day, he, he continues to do so. He'll be calling uh, the U.S. Women's National Team's Olympic qualifying semifinal game uh, against Trinidad and Tobago. So in the meantime, Grant uh, had a great opportunity to sit down and, and talk with JP about everything, about his about his career, about his greatest moments, about some of the biggest games that he's called, and, and just getting his take on, on the broadcast business and what it means to be an American announcer calling uh, soccer in this country. Um, and, and with that, we will let JP and Grant take it away. The legend, JP Della Camera and Grant Wall. We are here today with a special guest on the Planet Football Podcast. He is calling the Olympic qualifying decider for the U.S. women's national team versus Trinidad and Tobago on NBCSN Friday night at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. He has had such a remarkable career calling U.S. soccer games that he is informally known as the legend. J.P. Delacamera, thank you for joining the podcast. Grant, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about your career today because I, I think it's pretty remarkable. I've had the pleasure of getting to know you in recent years after following you uh, in your coverage and, and calling games over the years. You have called 13 World Cups, which is amazing to me. How many men's, how many women's? Uh, it's eight men uh, consecutive, uh, not all on television. A couple of them were on radio. Actually, three of them were on radio and five on television and five total on the women's side. So eight men, five women in total. Okay. And I mean, I've just so gotten used to now your voice being the voice of so many memories calling games over the years. But I don't even know how you got started calling soccer. How was it? Well, uh, years and years ago, growing up in the Boston area, Waltham, Massachusetts, I was a hockey fan. Grew up watching Bobby Orr, uh, Phil Esposito, Derek Sanderson. I mean, the Bruins were were kings in Boston at the time. So I really wanted to be a hockey announcer. And some way, somehow, growing up in Boston, don't ask me how, I was never a Red Sox fan. I was never a baseball fan. So, you know, what was the other sport that I was going to follow? I mean, we had some 
a couple of professional leagues in the Boston area at the time that were trying to um, earn a living in the USA. And I started watching some of those games. And, you know, I saw some of the similarities. Obviously, the speed is totally different, but I like the fact that the ball was always moving. There was constant motion. And I thought, you know, this is this is something that I like. And I started to follow it more. And then starting my career as a minor league hockey announcer, I, I got tired of riding the buses and and not getting a taste of the NHL, and along comes indoor soccer. And that was really my, my biggest break, I would say, mm-hmm. soccer-wise, was, was the indoor package. Was that like the MISL? Yep. Uh, I was working for the Erie Blades at the time, mm-hmm. and they were a farm team of the Pittsburgh Penguins. The Penguins were owned by Edward DeBartolo, who also owned the indoor soccer Pittsburgh Spirit. And so I thought, you know, this would be all right. It's like it has something similar to hockey with the way it's moving around. A lot of goals in this game. They're using the boards. You know, this is something I like, and it'll also get me off off those buses, those 10-hour bus rides. And 10 hours is nothing in those days. Sometimes there were 15-hour bus rides. So uh, I got to fly. I got to go to some major cities, you know, um, got to call some big games. And at that time, Grant, as, as you may recall, uh, you may not because uh, you're not as old as I am, but... If you think back to those days, the best players, the best soccer players in mm-hmm. the United States were playing indoors mm-hmm. in the major indoor soccer league. We didn't have the outdoor game that we have now. So we had stars uh, in their prime coming over from Europe and South America playing indoor soccer in Pittsburgh and a lot of other cities. Well, I did grow up in Kansas City being a Kansas City Comets fan. Sold out all the time, right? Yeah. Under under, under the Liwicky brothers. Exactly. They were running it. Yep. And they were so big. it was uh, a really cool introduction to the sport. And, uh, you know, the transition from indoor to outdoor, you know, when did you start doing outdoor games soccer-wise for the first time? Well, outdoor would be in the, in the mid eighties that I started doing. I mean, I did a couple of games, uh, earlier in my career. They don't, they're not even listed anymore on my resume, Pennsylvania stoners, American <laughs> soccer league champs. I think that was stoners. 1980. Uh, I filled in for two games with the Detroit express. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was 1980, but again, that's, that's not even on my resume. So probably, uh, the mid eighties was the first time and it was probably more college soccer with mm-hmm. ESPN at the time. I mean, again, we didn't really have the, the pro game. And then I started mm-hmm. doing Olympic qualifiers and then World Cup qualifiers. And, and then, you know, finally we had a, a league to call our own, if you will, with Major League Soccer making the big splash as they did in the 90s. And, and you mentioned hockey as being kind of your first love. And I know you've been an NHL broadcaster recently. Sometimes here in the soccer community, you're kind of dead to us if you're not doing soccer and we don't think about like other things that you're doing. How many other sports have you called? I've done soccer, hockey, and basketball. Those are the three. I Mm -hmm. actually did an arena football league game years ago, but again, that was a fill-in. I did one boxing event years ago as a favor to someone, and (laughs) I I still regret that. Um, I had to do a truck pull, for Bud Sports. <laughs> We're going to go uh, track this down, do? by the uh, way. A, a lumberjack competition for Bud Sports. We do a lot of things, Grant, in the early days, things that I would never, ever consider again. So when anybody asks me though, what sports I do now, I, I say it's really the three. And I think most play-by-play announcers, no matter who you talk to, the, the greatest ones out there don't do more than three sports. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of guys do uh, football and hockey or, or 
baseball and hockey, but um, very rarely would somebody do even three sports, let alone more than that, I would think. Okay. Now, you live in Connecticut, but you are always on the road. I mean, I travel a lot. You travel an insane amount. How much are we talking about? What's your day-to-day schedule like? And how many different soccer events are you covering now? You know, I I don't have a number to give you or or a number of flights or, or any of that stuff. But I do do a lot of work with Fox in Los Angeles, a lot of games off the monitor. So those are cross country flights for me. And those are uh, those are always difficult out of Hartford. Um, one time they had a direct flight. Uh, they're going to get it back. But if not, you know, it's like a seven or eight hour day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could go to Europe on, on a direct flight uh, in that amount of time. So there is a lot of travel that's involved. My day to day varies. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week I'm off except for for two events, two shows uh, on Sirius XM, which I enjoy. I can do that out of the comfort of my home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do do a lot of traveling because you know, when you're in this business, unless you're working exclusively for one network, mm-hmm. you, you tend to work for a bunch of people. So I work with One World Sports doing Cosmos games and some NASL games. I've been the original voice and still am with the Philadelphia Union. So I think the hardest the hardest thing about my, my deal, Grant, I think, mm-hmm. is trying to keep everybody happy because you can't do every game for everyone that you would like to. So mm-hmm. you have to say no at, at times and kind of mix and match and, and and try your best to keep everybody as happy as you can. Okay. Now, you are calling these games, these Olympic qualifiers this week uh, from a monitor in Stamford, Connecticut. Um, and it's something that is becoming more common. It's not a new thing, but it's becoming more common than ever, it seems like, in all sports, not just soccer, where the announcers are not on site. You know, these games are taking place in Texas. And now that you've done this a lot, how do you go about calling a game from a monitor? How does that change your approach to calling a game? Well, it's it's good and bad. I, I think when you call games off the monitor, it makes you sharper for when you go out and, and do games at the stadium and vice versa. Uh, it's You're calling the same game, but, but here's the difference. This is what I tell... Um, everyone, whether it's um, fans, media, whatever that is, that this is the only time in your life as a fan, somebody that's watching a game on TV, that you see exactly what the announcer sees and nothing more, mm-hmm. right? Because if I'm at the game, I can see everything. The fan at home can't see everything because no matter how great the producer or director is, they can't show you, you know, the entire field, who's warming up, um, who's uh, who's overlapping on one side if the ball's on the other side. They can't show all that stuff, right? But you can see that because you're there in the stadium. So that's the biggest difference. And, and what I would tell uh, young aspiring broadcasters when they, when they ask me for tips if it's their first time calling a game off the monitor is just keep it simple. You can only call what you can see. So don't speculate. You know, don't, don't imagine that something is happening when it's not. Uh, and you, you'll learn. You'll learn the tricks of the trade. You know, I can pretty much tell without seeing the assistant referee's flag up this is an offside based mm-hmm. on the body language. If I'm not sure, I don't say anything. And then sure enough, the camera will cut to the assistant referee holding the flag up. So I think those are some of the little tricks of the trade that you learn. Uh, sometimes when you do a game, let's say let's say at NBC, for example, uh, the pictures are, are fantastic in HD. The audio is great. It sounds like you're actually there. So there's no problem with that. If I have good audio, 
I'm fine. If I have a good picture, I'm fine. The problem comes sometimes with some of these CONCACAF games in Central America where the feeds are not as good, shall we say, mm-hmm. as, as they are in other places. So, again, you know, try to keep it simple. I mean, if, if you're not sure who has the ball, you don't have to identify every single player on every touch. And, and if you can't see who has the ball, the person at home is not going to be able to see it either because your level of concentration is so much different than the viewer at home because this is this is your living this is what you're trying to do you have to find out who has that ball you know who's that next pass going to so i think those are some of the tricks that you learn but only from the reps only from doing a significant amount of games and and whether we like it or not this seems to be a growing trend right that yeah. that announcers are going to be calling games off monitors uh, yeah. for national broadcast you know, it's the good and the bad, Grant, because I think if, if announcers, and I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about a lot of people. A lot of people do these, and a lot of people do these very well. If if we were doing a bad job on these, you know, like the NBC Olympics, the only person there in 2012 overseas was Arlo White, um, and obviously Kyle Martino, I think, was with him, and, and Brandy Chastain, but just that first team was over there. Everything else was called off the monitor in New York. And I think only one, maybe one basketball team announced team was over there, but most of the big events were called in New York. And I can't tell you how many emails and texts that I received from people that are in the television business that would say, how's the coffee in London? Uh, How's the weather in London? When you come back, let's have lunch. And I would be writing back and I'm saying, I'm right down the street from you. You know, we're, we're both in New York. And I think those are the best compliments that you get. And when you can do it at that level, I mean, NBC's a smart television network. If, if the games sound awful because you're not there, you know, forget the money, right? They're spending billions and billions of dollars on rights and production. So I think if you're doing a bad job, you know, everybody's going on site. So I, I think it's the good and the bad, right? If, if we do a good job, you're going to see more of this in the future because it is about dollars and cents, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you're saving, think about how many people broadcast the Olympics, multiply that times the number of flights and the hotel rooms, right. and it's significant dollars. So I, I understand that. And I, I had a conversation you know, off air with you yesterday about ESPN doing a lot of even basketball games right. off the monitor. They would never have considered that years ago. But I, I think it's uh, the economics that we deal with today in television. And I think maybe as these TV rights get higher and higher and higher, you know, you got to figure out how to justify the books, right? Right. You, you can't keep losing money on these things. Um, you know, ratings are one thing and sponsors are another. But, you know, at some point, the the accountants are looking at the dollars and cents and saying, well, wait a minute, why are we doing this? Right. Every great team and star player has a strong support system to back them up. For every Messi, there's a Busquets. And the same goes for your business, and FreshBooks is here to help. For the best way to manage your books and make tax season easy, get FreshBooks, a super intuitive tool that makes creating and sending invoices extremely simple for freelancers and small business owners. FreshBooks stands out where it really counts, getting you paid. You can create and send professional invoices in just 30 seconds, and you'll see exactly when your client looked at the invoice you've emailed, tracking the status of all, our outstanding invoices for you. FreshBooks can even send late payment reminders to your clients automatically, which means you're not wasting time chasing down and fighting clients for payment. The results speak for themselves. FreshBooks users get paid five days faster on average. Don't just take my word for it. 
Right now, FreshBooks is offering our listeners 30 days of unrestricted use, totally free, and you don't need a credit card to sign up. Just go to freshbooks.com planet and enter planet in the how you heard about us section. That's freshbooks.com planet and enter planet in the how you heard about us section. So one fun thing I wanted to do, and I had talked about this with you before, is you've had such an amazing career of games involving U.S. soccer that you've broadcast, men's and women's national team, MLS, so many things over the years. And I asked you to name your five most memorable experiences uh, covering soccer. And so you named those five, and basically I'm just going to bring them up and, and ask you what what is special for you with those okay. memories? Um, okay. And We're starting with, what, 89, the World the, Cup qualifier? The 1989 World Cup qualifier, USA against Trinidad and Tobago in Trinidad. Paul Caligiuri shot heard around the world, qualifying the U.S. for its first World Cup in 40 years. Uh, you were there. You called that game. What do you remember? Good day, everyone. I'm John Paul Della Camera. Alongside me is Seamus Mallon. We've been here for about three hours. The fans have been here for longer than that. Uh, such a vivid memory of that, right? I mean, I remember landing at the airport. A crowd was there. I mean, I don't know if you can still do it in Trinidad. I know you can't do it here, but they were meeting the airplane there, and you heard the noise and the pounding of the drums and the music and yelling at the USA to go home. I remember that stuff. I remember uh, people had painted their cars and houses red in Trinidad's <laughs> colors, you know, in advance of the game. Imagine doing that in this country, you know, tell your wife, whatever your, you know, your favorite college or pro team is that, you know, for the Super Bowl, we're going to paint our, our house, you know, Denver orange or whatever their <laughs> colors are. Right. I mean, you wouldn't be married much longer, probably. Right. I mean, if you said that, but that's what they did. Many people painted their houses and cars red. Uh, we got to the stadium. We were told to get to the stadium uh, three and a half to four hours early. Wow. And that never happened in those days. We got there an hour and a half. That was it, right? Mm-hmm. And I was told that even with a press credential, if I didn't show up three and a half to four hours before the game, that I might not be able to get into the stadium. So that was the risk that I would have taken. So gladly, I went in, you know, and I thought, how am I going to focus here for all this time? And they opened the gates, I think it was three or four hours early. People were singing and dancing from three, three to four hours before kickoff, you know, right really through and, until the end of the game. I mean, it was mm-hmm. like nonstop. And in the stadium itself, when I walked up with Seamus, hours before the game started, I looked up and, and the stands are all full and mm-hmm. everyone's in red. And I said to Seamus, I wonder if it's like this on the other side. And as I turned my head, it was like the stadium was full. So they were right. Mm-hmm. We would not have gotten in to do the stadium. And we had to do our stand-up on the field. Okay. And Charlie Slagle, who you who you probably know, I think at that time he was a coach at, at Davidson, mm-hmm. he was like our bodyguard. He got us down there because people were sitting in the stands, in the aisle. There's no way that Seamus and I could have gotten on the field to do the on-camera if Charlie wasn't like the muscle guy, the front guy wow. that got us on the field. You know, those are my memories. And I remember also that they had declared a national holiday for their country. The mm-hmm. following day, they expected to win. Mm-hmm. So I, I have just so many awesome memories of that. And some of it um, seems like it only happened yesterday. Well, Seamus Mallon called that game with you. It Was it shown live on ESPN? It's a great question. Um, I thought 
I thought it was on tape delay, but I'm not positive. Okay. I'm not positive. I just remember somebody telling me how they had to get the signal from Trinidad. It bounced all over the place, the satellite. Uh, they told me this this route that I couldn't even imagine technically. But uh, yeah, that I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not so, sure. Yeah, the U.S. ends up winning that game one nothing on Paul Caligiuri's mm-hmm. goal and basically started the modern era of U.S. soccer. Uh, when I was down there in November for the qualifier, I actually went to the spot on the field after the game where Caligiuri had it hit his shot and picked up some blades of grass and stuffed them in my pocket. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Ramos putting it in to Caligiuri. Beats the first man. A left-footed shot. Paul Caligiuri has scored a goal in the USA. Lead 1-0. That might be the shot heard around the world. Paul Caligiuri, who has not played. He had a stress fracture. He's not played. I call that now, Grant, you know, they say the shot heard around the world. I call it now the billion-dollar goal because mm-hmm. I think everything that's happened after that um, maybe would not have happened had it not been for that goal, right? They haven't missed a World Cup since a professional league started. All the sponsorships, all the television rights, when you start adding it up, it's amazing. And I look back to, let's compare it to Canada. They qualified for the World Cup in 1986, haven't qualified since. Right, right. Well, the second memory you mentioned is the 1990 World Cup one year after that, and that was on TNT. And one thing mm-hmm. that I've always found impressive about your career is how many different networks you've worked with and continue to work with. You know, last year was Fox Sports with the Women's World Cup, um, you know, ESPN for that 89 game, TNT for this 1990 World Cup. Uh, tell me about what that was like over in Italy. Well, first of all, my, my grandparents are from Italy. So, you know, it was like going home in a way for me, you know, I'm, I'm uh, born in this country and my parents were too, but I have an Italian background. So I thought that was fantastic. Uh, Turner did something that nobody, no one has ever done. Instead of staying at a hotel, they put us at a, at a rich person's villa. (laughs) So we all had our own rooms there. We had a chef who prepared both Italian and American food. We had a dirt soccer field on the property. (laughs) Uh, and, and so every day we were playing games, it was a swimming pool there. Uh, and people probably don't realize this, but when we did our stand up opens in those days, mm-hmm. instead of being at the stadium, because sometimes you didn't have access to an ENG crew or, you know, it was a timing thing or security. So we couldn't do it. <clears throat> so sometimes we would do an open in our backyard at the villa <clears throat> and we would say, you know, welcome to Bari, you know, <laughs> and another time it'd be. You know, welcome to Rome or wherever we were. We just changed the setting. So I'm giving you all these little secrets here that that people don't realize happened. Um, But I I do remember also that tournament. I mean, I I had so much fun there. It was like living in a fraternity house with with all those guys, Uh, all all good friends. We all got along. That was fantastic. But I also remember, you know, that was a tournament for Scalacci, who came out of nowhere, scored six Mm -hmm. goals. I did the game where Italy lost in the semifinal to Argentina on penalty kicks mm-hmm. after that 1-1 draw in Naples. And you could literally hear a pin drop mm-hmm. at the end of that game. The Italians thought that they were going to go on to the final and maybe win it on home soil. And I, I could tell the next day just from the, the pulse of the people and the prices of the souvenirs, the merchandise went mm-hmm. down, you know, when Italy lost. It, it was almost like a death. Right. I, who were you working with on that tournament? By the way. Rick Davis, Rick, okay. Rick Davis, um, who was at that time, I think one of the last cuts for that team, 
I think he was obviously hoping that he was going to make that team. But Bob Gansel went with a much younger group uh, with a college guy who we both know, Tony Miola, in goal. Mm-hmm. And, and so Rick was working with me. Great guy. Tremendous guy. And did you call the Italy-USA game? No, but I was sitting in the stands. Okay. Sitting in the stands, enjoying it. It was wow. fun. Nice. Peter Vermees still tells a story about how different his life would have been if he hadn't missed a goal by about an I was sitting there thinking game. it was going in. You know, I, I, I don't remember, you know, I, I remember being near the center of the field and, and down low. So that the seats that Turner got us were very good. Mm-hmm. So I, I do remember that and thinking, this could work. This could happen. <laughs> but it didn't. <laughs> now, the third event you mentioned was the 1994 World Cup final that you called. And uh, who did you call that for? Uh, that was with, sorry about the phone ringing. Uh, that was with, what was it called? Um, not one world sports network. It was a radio network at the time. That's no longer around. I think it maybe became sporting news. Okay. Maybe one-on-one sports. I think it was called. Okay. It was a radio network. And I was the lead voice for that one. Okay. And, and obviously that was, uh, taking place in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. What, what do you remember of that final? Unfortunately, my favorite player, probably still my favorite player of all time, Roberto Baggio, um, missed when he had his chance to take the penalty. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like I couldn't lose in that game, you know, because obviously I wanted the U.S. to win. But if you asked me who else I wanted to win, I would have said Italy or Brazil. You know, I Mm -hmm. I liked the way Brazil played more than any other team. So if if they won, I was okay. Um, And I do have the Italian background, so I, I really wanted Italy. You know, and Baggio was my favorite player. So I think the, the worst part was not that Italy lost. It was that Baggio missed on his penalty kick. Okay. Um, but I do have another memory of that. Yeah. Of, of that. Not the final, mm-hmm. but of that 1994 World Cup. And I, I'll never forget this. Uh, in Chicago, I can't remember which teams were playing, but I did the game. And my engineer, who was working with me next to me, said to me, Oh my God, he said. I said, what's up? He said, they're, they're going to get O.J. Simpson. They're going to arrest O.J. Simpson. I said, really? And he said, yeah, it's, it's all over the news. They're going to get O.J. Simpson. So before I leave the stadium, he says to me, you know, they found Simpson and he's, he's um, in a Bronco and, and they're, trying to, they're trying to get him. And I said, wow, I said, I, I got to go to the airport. I got to catch a flight. I said, but that's interesting. <laughs> So I, I get to the airport and I'm flying to Detroit and I see all these people and they're, they're crowded around the television stations in, in the sports bars. And I see all these people and it reminded me of the 1990 World Cup in Italy, because if you walked by an electronic store in Italy, people on the street were stopping and they were looking at the television, you know, mm-hmm. watching Italy play. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought when I got to the airport, I thought, Oh my God, soccer's made it in America. We're all watching. They're all watching the World Cup. This is fantastic. And as I get closer, I see this car chase. And I'm thinking, really? They're, they're all watching the O.J. Simpson Bronco chase. And I thought, this is kind of nutty. And I got to Detroit, and I don't know how long that flight is, but when I landed, that's when they said that Simpson was in custody. Wow. So that's, my, that's one of my 1994 memories, the Bronco chase. I remember having OJ Simpson. 
I remember having, I was watching the World Cup with some Argentines at a bar in Boston and trying to explain to them why some of the the televisions were not showing the games, but rather the the Bronco chase. And and there was just a complete lack of comprehension about what was wrong with our country. And and it it turned out not to, it was obviously a big moment for soccer in 94, having the World Cup here. But I think that was probably also the, the, you know, the starting moment for televised car chases in Los Angeles. Yeah, no, yeah. Now, unfortunately, we see we see more of them than we want to see. But you know how there's big moments in in your in your history. You know, when people would say, "Where were you when you know when John Kennedy was shot?" or "Where were you right. you know at 9/11?" I'm not comparing you know these events, but you know big moments in mm-hmm. American history. And people will always say, "You know, where were you? Do you remember?" And and that's odd that that's my memory of of the O.J. Simpson case. It, and it goes back to the to the World Cup of 1994. So two other memorable moments that you gave me, and they're both involving the Women's World Cup. The The first one, 1999, you called the final. Uh, USA beats China on penalty kicks and becomes, kind of completes this transformation of that team, that 99 US team, into a national phenomenon uh, where they're on the covers of Newsweek and Time, not just Sports Illustrated. Uh, what do you remember that final out in Pasadena? Uh, one of the most dramatic games I can ever remember. There was so much drama in that game. And I can remember, you know, Christine Lilly's clearance off the line where it looked like this is trouble. I remember them taking Michelle Akers off the field. Her, her battered body could just take no more. Uh, I remember the penalty kicks. I knew that um, Mia didn't even like taking penalty kicks, right? right. And the U.S. made all of their kicks. Mm-hmm. in that one and, and obviously you remember brandy's and the celebration and um i remember i think the call was something like you know if if she scores here you know the u.s wins and all i said was the word goal and i laid out And maybe 10 seconds later, I heard people in my ear saying, lay out, lay out. And it's like, I've been out, you know, like I'm watching that moment. I'm not talking over that. And I don't remember how long I or we laid out, but I enjoyed that. You know, I I enjoy watching that. To me, those are moments not for broadcasters, but for fans, people that are watching it on TV, people that are watching it in the stadium. Uh, I don't want to talk over those pictures. I think that the Chastain goal and the celebration, uh, that to me said it all. Uh, yeah, I, that's very well said. I, I, I'm always curious, do you think about that ahead of the game? Like, what am I going to do if this happens or that happens? Am I going to lay out? How, how is that? Are you just following that by instinct? No. You know, I met Brent Musburger years ago, and he probably doesn't remember this, but I met him at an ESPN seminar, and I told him that, you know, he was the guy that I looked up to. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of people that I looked up to in this business, you know, Bob Costas, Al Michaels, um, to name a couple. But Musburger was the one that, that taught me how to lay out, you know, for the drama, for the big moment, you know, like uh, as a broadcaster, I've never, never wanted to be bigger than the event. You know, the event is the event. It is what it is, right? And we're there as broadcasters to try to make that experience better for those watching at home. So 
I've never thought about a line that I would say if mm-hmm. something happened. In fact, if I if I go back to that qualifier with um, the Caligiuri goal, mm-hmm. I think back then, first of all, I was younger, so I was thinking about it. And it was after Al Michaels and, and what he had said, right? So I'm thinking, well, what if the U.S. qualifies? You know, what would I what would I say? And I even thought about throwing some Italian in there. And then I thought, you know, if I say in Italian, you know, we're going to Italy, what if I say it wrong? You know, what if it comes out bad? So I thought, you know, I, I'm not confident I can't do that, right? Mm-hmm. So if you go back to the tape, because I've had to go back to it a few times when people have asked me about it. I mean, I have so many memories of the game, but mm-hmm. not of, of what I said. Mm-hmm. And I remember the line that Seamus Mallon said at the end of the game where he said, where's Al Michaels when you really need him? And I thought, that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, fantastic. Because uh, I didn't have a line. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think when you when you try to come up with a line, you really struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, and it sounds, to me, it sounds fake. I think when Al Michaels said what he said, you know, do you believe in miracles? I, I mean, how do you top that? I mean, really? And I do believe that it just came. Because mm-hmm. I, I, first of all, I don't think anyone expected the U.S. to win that game right. back then. So I, I think that that was legit. That was sincere. And I think people that have tried to do that over the years have struggled. And usually when I listen to a game, I can tell if somebody's thought about that line. I would say 99% of the time, I can tell if, if that was a line that just came off the top of your head mm-hmm. or if that's something that you wrote down the night before. Okay. That's fascinating to me because when Al Michaels said, do you believe in miracles? It didn't sound prepared. And I don't even know if it was. Yeah. I would doubt it. I I just would, you know, I don't think he's ever said whether it was prepared or not, but I doubt it. You know, there, there are some games where like, let's say the other night, USA is playing Puerto Rico, right? Mm -hmm. In, in the women's game. I don't know what the odds were of Puerto Rico winning. Let's call it, (laughs) 10 billion to one. <laughs> so what, what possible line could I have? I mean, why would I even think about it? It was, you know what I mean? It was, it was never going to happen. So I, I think when you, when you struggle to come up with lines like that, you, you're kind of wasting your own time. You know, I, I do like to visualize though. Uh, I do like to um, think about what could happen on the field. I might picture somebody taking a shot, somebody making a save. I might picture the starting 11. I might recite it in my head. Uh, stuff like that. I will try to visualize people doing things on the field, but I, I never even think about coming up with a line. Okay. Now, the fifth event that you mentioned is the most recent one, which is the 2015 Women's World Cup with Fox, and obviously the U.S. women winning the World Cup for the first time in 16 years since you had called the 99 final. And this one had an even bigger national audience. Uh, I think the Fox audience was 25 million or more. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Biggest audience ever for a, a soccer game in the United States. Um, what, you know, what do you think of when you think of that event? Well, people ask me when it was over, like, was that the biggest event? You know, was that your your best memory? And I said, you know, it's too fresh. I mean, I, I need time to think about it. I need time to process it. Um, I don't have a favorite memory at this moment because I, I gave you five. Yeah. Uh, and and I. I had to skip the Cuba trip, which was fascinating mm-hmm. uh, during World Cup qualifying for, for 2010, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, I skipped that. I skipped the 2004 Olympics in Greece where, you know, it was the final game for, 
for, for stars like Mia Hamm on the international level, you know, final competitive game, her and, and other great stars of that era, you know, I had to leave those out. So it's, it's like, um, it's like being the parent of, you know, five or six children, you know, <laughs> you don't have a favorite, you know, uh, if you do shame on you, you know, they're supposed to all be your favorite. So, but I think, you know, 2015 women's world cup will stand out for me for a lot of reasons. Uh, the record viewership is one, but I got to tell you, uh, it's the most enjoyable experience I've ever had at a world cup. Take nothing away from other networks that I've worked for, but I thought the way Fox did it was fantastic. I mean, um, people got along from start to finish and, and world cups can be grinds. I know that in other world cups, there are people that they got the work done, but you know, they complained about it. The end of the world cup, they said their experience wasn't good, you know, and I'm thinking that's bad. That's sad. You know, Mm -hmm. this was a happy world cup and, and most of the stories that I've heard have been fantastic from everything that Fox did, you know, from the set that they had in Vancouver to the number of quality people, mm-hmm. not just the quantity, but the quality of the people that they hired. They, they spared no expense in bringing the World Cup in. You know, they added coverage to it. Uh, money was not the factor in the end. And I think that it was so well organized. And you know this, that over the years, Fox has had a stigma attached to it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, reputation wise, when it was going back to the old Fox soccer channel, you know, and how do they do on, on big events? Well, I think they knocked this one out of the park. So, so full credit to them for what they did. And Oh, by the way, Carly Lloyd had a <laughs> performance of a lifetime in the final. So I think you'll always remember that, you know, uh, a big game performance from her Start by the USA Lloyd with Morgan streaking. She's chipping the goalkeeper. And what I also remember is, you know, 1999 Women's World Cup, the stadiums were all full, right? But but it was in America. We had that big time experience. Like people love big time events in America. Mm-hmm. We were in Canada and it felt like we were in the U.S. We met more U.S. fans up there, people in the red, white and blue. I think that that semifinal game in Montreal, uh, whatever the stadium holds, if it was you know sixty thousand, it might have been like fifty nine thousand rooting for the U.S. and a thousand for Germany. I mean, it was staggering how many Americans were walking the streets of of Canada during that tournament. So it, it felt like we were at home. You know, the language was the same, uh, the food was the same. So I think it it was a good tune up for Fox because mm-hmm. navigating through Russia. Compared to Canada, it's going to be totally, totally different. I should probably say full disclosure: we both worked for Fox during that World Cup, but you know, we both had really good experiences. And and I will say this: that you know, Fox invested a lot in that tournament, not knowing if the U.S. was going to win, not knowing right. if they were going to get the mega audiences that they did get. Not just for the for the final, which was ridiculously large, but really for every game that exceeded expectations. Yeah, the ratings uh, kept building. And I think when we got to the quarterfinals, I think uh, that's when the Fox executives were saying, you know what, we could we could do this. If, if they can get to the final, we could set the record. And I was one of the ones saying, wow, I, I don't think so. I mean, that's the record that they set in 99 was huge. And, and remember back then, social media was nothing back then. People weren't watching games on on laptops or on cell phones like they are today or, or an iPad. So 
And, and there's so many more things going on in the world today, right? So I thought, no, they're not going to do that. But, you know, when we got to the semis and I saw what that rating was, I started to believe in what the Fox people were saying. Mm -hmm. And going into that final, I absolutely thought that they would break the record. Yeah. So you look at those audiences, you look at the volume of soccer on American television these days. I mean, it's incredible compared to even 10 years ago when there were just a few games per week from around the world on U.S. television. Now you're talking about 70, 80, 90 games, live games available on U.S. television from around the world every week, including in the U.S. Um, did you ever think soccer would get this big in the U.S.? Um, I'm going to have to say no, not, not from the television standpoint, certainly. I thought we could have a successful league like Major League Soccer. I, I don't think that has surprised me, you know, what we've mm -hmm. seen with Major League Soccer. But I think the fact that we could watch more games in this country from England than they can watch in England <laughs> uh, speaks volumes, right? And a lot of people don't remember this, but 1994 was the first time in this country we did a World Cup without commercials during the games. Mm. Right. Without <laughs> commercials. We had commercials in our soccer games. Wow. How bad and how embarrassing is that? Right. And, <laughs> and years and years ago, the game of the week was indoor soccer. Yeah. It wasn't outdoor soccer. Right. So think about how far we've come from the 80s. You know, uh, before we didn't televise every World Cup game. TNT didn't have all of the games. They probably had half of the games. And at that time, TNT was not in as many homes as they are in now. Now, if you said to somebody, we're not going to show this game live, people would go crazy for a World Cup game not shown live. You know, how dare you? Right. But yet years ago, we had commercials during our games at the World Cup. So we have come a long way. And I think that the future is even greater in this country and not just for Major League Soccer, for the NASL, for USL and whatever else may come down the road. And I'm hoping that the NWSL does very well. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, women's leagues in this country, we thought we're going to do better, especially after the 99 World Cup and then after 2015. But I still think there's a future for women's soccer in this country. I think there's a future for indoor soccer in this country. And now we're seeing that a, a futsal league is starting mm -hmm. next year as well. So I think the sky's the limit in this country. Now, I got to ask you, did you ever call a game when there was a goal scored during the commercial break and then you had to announce Yes, it? yes, yes. Oh. 1993. And let me go back to my memory. USA played El Salvador. Mm -hmm. You could look this up. It was in 1993 at the L.A. Coliseum. U.S. beat El Salvador 7 to nothing. Mm -hmm. Joe Max Moore scored four goals. He should have had a fifth. There was a hole in the net. They didn't see it until the game was over. I remember the referees looking after the game and they saw where the hole was, but he should have had five goals. Dominic Kinnear scored twice in that game. Hugo Perez had the other. Mm -hmm. Of the seven goals, I believe that four of the goals, I'm going to call, I'm going to say were tainted from the standpoint that either we missed one completely or we just came back from commercial or we were in replay. I mean, but there were... I would say four of those goals, I was so upset after that game. It was like, really? I mean, you're trying to take your best gamble in terms of, you know, when do you go for a break? And at that time, I think there were probably two minutes of commercials, but I don't recall. Yeah. Uh, you'd do it on a goal kick if the ball went out of play. But if you're not anticipating um, 
then you've lost a few seconds, right? So as soon as that ball goes out of play is when you should break. But I, I do believe it was definitely three, if not four goals that we didn't call the way we would normally call because either we were away on a commercial break or we were just coming back and maybe I said the word goal, but to me, that's, that's missing it. But I think that was the last game where we had commercials in this country. That just brings tears to my eyes. I'm sorry. That's, yeah, oh it's, it's a bad memory, actually, for me. It's a good memory in the sense that if that's what it took, right, to, to get commercials off, then I'm, I'm happy to have been a, a part of that. But yeah. it, was, it was a frustrating day in the, in the television world that day. <laughs> There's one more thing I want to ask you about, and it's kind of an important thing, I think. We have, a, you and I, a lot of British friends who, who do soccer work in the U.S., who do great work. But we often see this sort of idea, we hear this from television bosses here in the U.S., using the term authentic to describe British accents calling soccer in the U.S. And I'll be honest, that drives me nuts, uh, the idea that that's authentic and an American accent is not. What, what's your take on that? Well, I think network executives, when they talk about soccer, should remove the word authentic <laughs> from their vocabulary because they don't know what they're talking about because... You know, just taking myself, if I've done 13 World Cups, am I not authentic? What, is, what does authentic mean? You know, I think the sad part is this. Uh, full disclosure, I like a lot of English broadcasters. I, I think Martin Tyler is terrific. I mean, he was my favorite announcer, I would say, you know, growing up uh, and looking at, uh, I, I don't mean growing up, but in my, in my adult years when I started to watch more and more soccer from overseas, um, Martin Tyler was my favorite. Uh, I like Ian Dark. I like John Champion. So it's it's. I'm not anti-European voices. So right. I'm not anti-Brit. Not at all. I mean, I just gave you three guys that I think are are very good. But I think we have a lot of good broadcasters in this country. We have a lot more good broadcasters in this country. And and I do not want to hear any of those three guys calling a U.S. national team game. That doesn't mean I'm anti-British, uh, anti-European, or anti-authentic. I'm pro-American and yeah. proud of that. You know, I, I want to hear American voices calling our national team games. I, I don't care about MLS or any other any other game, but for U.S. national team game, and I'm not I'm not lobbying for myself. You right. know, I've I've done my games. I'm lobbying for the future voices in this country because I do think with MLS with all the teams that we have now and with all of the people that Fox employs and ESPN employs, you can't say that, that we don't have enough good American voices out there now. So I think that while those British voices are, are fantastic, um, I just gave you three of my favorites. I actually worked an indoor soccer game once with Martin Tyler <laughs> where he did color and I did play by play. And that was fantastic. Uh, and I, and I like Martin personally, uh, and, and Ian, I don't know as well, John Champion, I, I've never met, mm -hmm. but I do think those guys are all very good. But I, 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 like you am bothered by the term authentic because what network executives are, are saying then is that an accent makes you authentic. And I, I think it's your body of work that makes you authentic. It's, you know, what skills you have, it's your resume that makes you authentic. It doesn't matter really where you're from, but. Uh, I'll be happy if they would lose that word from their vocabulary. 
so much going through my head with that response that I want to look up the Martin Tyler, JP Della Camera call of an indoor soccer game. All right. I'm going to give you more information then. It was um, the Baltimore Blast. They were on a tour. I think they played Aston Villa. And the game was in Birmingham. Birmingham. Yeah. Birmingham, England. And I think that Andy Gray was coaching in that game because the regular manager of that team was not there. Could it have been Ron Atkinson? I'm trying to remember yeah. back. This was like 1990 or, or thereabouts. Okay. Uh, I do remember Andy Gray was involved in it. But it was fun to work with with Martin Tyler because to me, like he's a he's a legend in it. I'm glad he did color and and not me because I, I'm I'm not an analyst. Neither one of us are really analysts, but he would have been the better of the two. But it was a nice experience. Uh, a lot of people are not familiar with that fact that I did a game with Martin. And after that, you know, he and I would email from time to time and I, I would always see him at World Cups. And I, I still think, you know, when I watch a game and I hear his voice, um, I enjoy it. Now, was that an indoor game or an outdoor yep. game? No, indoor. It was indoor, indoors. Uh, you know, uh, Birmingham Arena, maybe. Not, okay. not sure. No idea of the score. You know, no idea of any of that stuff. I think Kenny Cooper was was coaching the Baltimore Blast was at Stan's, that time. Was Stan Stamankovich playing? What's that? Was Stan Stamankovich playing for Baltimore? Ooh, he probably was. I hated that guy as a kid. Oh boy, the late Stan Stamankovich, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I wish he to speak ill of Stan. A, he was a, a great ago, He was a player that looked like the most out of shape player you would ever see. And yet the skill on the ball that he had was fantastic. And again, back in those days, the best players were playing indoor and that's how much credibility that they had that in those days, you know, they're going to England to play an indoor game. Wow. Wow. Well, I I could stay here for hours listening to you, but we should probably wrap up. Just an absolute pleasure speaking to you, JP Delacamera. Thank you for joining the Planet Football Podcast. Hey, it's an honor. Honor to be here with you. Thanks, Grant. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.